Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Lisa, and I'm one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of bringing the message today. And today is our last uh, message in the series on trust that we've been going through for the last month. And uh, we have talked about trusting God in fear, trusting God in disappointments, trusting God when we're, we're in a discerning process, a decision-making process. And, you know, I know there's way more to learn about trusting God in various circumstances of our lives. But what I want to land on today is to remind us where trust is built. I read a quote this week that said, when chaos comes, we do not rise to the occasion, but we fall to our level of training. Do you agree with that? When chaos comes, we do not rise to the occasion, but we fall to our level of training. Now, I would argue in chaos or not, our lives reflect our training. Our lives reflect how we order and arrange our priorities, our spiritual habits, our practices, if you will. All of those things influence how we show up in the world, and it influences how we follow Jesus. So when it comes to trust, what's essential training? What's essential to our formation? Well, today I want to look at a very fun story, I think it's fun, in the Old Testament. And just to let you know, I was inspired uh, of this story in my reading of a book this past January. And the book is called, get this, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. And I read that, I'm like, it had me at hello. So I have enjoyed the book and uh, this week decided, you know what, I love this story, we're going to make it our message for Sunday. So um, the story reflects around the life of King David. And he was a man who was well known to be one who trusts in the Lord. And let's just think about his life for a sec before he took the throne. So he grew up as a shepherd boy, which means he spent a lot of time in the fields, spent a lot of time with God alone. He was anointed as a king as a young boy. Any young men in here, would you like to be anointed uh, to be a king? When you were like, I don't know, I should have studied that. How old was he? Anybody know when he was anointed? Maybe eight? <laughs> so he was anointed as a young kid, and it was because his heart set him apart from his brothers. And as a youth, he faced great challenges. In fact, he killed a lion with his bare hands. He killed a giant, you might know that story, named Goliath. And even after he was anointed, he had to wait about 22 years before he assumed the throne. Some of you may be waiting right now for something God has promised you, and, and David knew all about waiting. And during this period of waiting, it wasn't a cakewalk. In fact, the current king, King Saul, pursued his life, and he tried to kill him out of envy. David found himself hiding in caves. Well, David wasn't just a warrior, but he was also a beautiful musician at heart. He was an artist and a poet. He kind of was like the full package of a man, if you ask me. I mean, the guy had it going on. And he wrote beautiful psalms that we enjoy today. Psalms about trust, psalms that expressed his tr struggles before the Lord, his times of desperation. Some of you might know this one, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. So based on his life so far, I think David has a lot to teach us about trust. And I think he has a lot to teach us about the training that goes into his trusting. So our story today is going to begin in 1 Chronicles 15, 
If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, or your devices, you can turn to 1 Chronicles 15. And at this point, just to give you a little bit of a context, so David has been king for about seven and a half years, but he hasn't been king over all of Israel yet because the lands that he's tried to cover or conquer, they haven't been conquered yet up until this point. So his armies have now conquered the land that is known as Jerusalem. Sound familiar? So Jerusalem was set high up on a hill, and at that time it was called the city of David, but it was to be renamed Jerusalem. And so what does this mean for David? This means he finally can do whatever he wants. He can assume his throne over all of Israel after 22 years of waiting. It's finally here. He's king. His enemies have been defeated. All the pieces are coming together. And it's time for him to get busy and establish his throne. So, you wonder, well, what's he going to do first? If he has the power to do whatever he wants to, if he wants to make a home for himself, a home for God, what does he do first? A king would want to communicate, you know, something that's powerful and, and give hope to the people for their protection and their prosperity. So what is his first order of business as king over all of Israel? And what does that tell us about trust in God? Well, let's find out. So we begin reading in 1 Chronicles 15, 1 through 4. After David had constructed buildings for himself, that's what he did first, sounds good, the man needs a place to live. In the city of David, he prepared, get this, a place for the ark of God, and he pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. What? So, so David says, I want to prepare a place for this thing called the Ark of the Lord. And guess what? I'm going to, pin, I'm going to pitch a tent for it. And, and there's only a certain amount of people that can, um, that can carry it. And they're called Levites. And they're supposed to minister before him forever. Well, some of you may be wondering, well, what is this Ark of the Covenant? Now, I don't, I don't think this is exactly what it looked like, but it's, it's a close depiction. So the ark is kind of a box looking thing made out of wood. And to generalize the dimensions, it's about a four foot by two foot by two foot box. And it, it origin was way back in the time of Moses when the Israelites were, were wandering through the wilderness and God wanted them to establish a tabernacle, a place of worship. And so this ark of the covenant was placed in this tabernacle and it was considered very holy. But what you need to know this morning is what it represented. And the ark represented the presence of God. And because it represented the presence of God, there were very specific rules about how to move it and how to handle it because it was so holy. So fast forward now, King David is saying, I want that ark here in Jerusalem. I want you to go get it because King Saul never inquired for it but I'm going to do things differently. But there's a problem. There's no tabernacle already in the city. So what does he do? He pitches a tent. Now, this tent isn't like something you'd put up at Mound State Park or at a, a tail, tailgate for a football game, okay? Now, I don't know, again, what this thing looked like, but maybe it looks something like that. I was like, I got to give him something so our imaginations can help us with this picture. 
So David uh, pitched this tent, a house for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we also talked about who was going to move it, and I said Levites. So Levites were uh, a tribe that were set up to be the priests of God, people that acted on behalf of the Lord. They were mediators, so to speak. So again, I wanted to give you a picture of kind of this crazy thing happening is these priests, these Levites, dressed up in this garb, were carrying this box. Okay, the story just gets a little stranger. <laughs> so they're supposed to, uh, to, to uh, bring this ark up to the hill on top of the city of Jerusalem. That is what David has ordered. So let's continue to read how he makes this happen. Verse 3, David assembled all Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to the place he had prepared for it. And he called together the descendants of Aaron and the Levites. So picture this. David is forming a massive parade. He's forming a massive parade, and not just any parade, but a parade that's very holy, but also one that's going to soon be considered a little undignified. So you may wonder, well, what is in this parade, and who's in this parade, and who are all these people? Well, for the remaining, ver uh, the next like 19 verses, verse 5 through 24, I'm going to spare you reading really hard, complicated names that I can't even pronounce, <laughs> along with uh, a lot of the details of, of their instruments. But I'm summarizing with this list, okay, of these verses. We have 862 descendants of Aaron and the Levites, musicians of lyres, harps, and cymbals. Have any of you ever seen a harp in a marching band? I mean... This is something. I don't know how they did that, but they're marching down in this parade with these instruments. You have singers, you have gatekeepers, you have doorkeepers, and you have trumpet players, all forming under David's leadership. And in the list of these people appointed for the task, I love how he gets really specific in verse 22 with the choir director. And I just got to share it with you because it made me laugh. He said, Kenaniah, the head Levite, was in charge of the singing. Why? Well, that was his responsibility because he was skillful at it. Guess David didn't want a parade of bad singers. So he said, Kenaniah, you're my guy. Well, we keep reading, and it says, So David and the elders of Israel and commanders of, get this, units of a thousand. This is huge. This is a big deal. Went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom. Let's see, go on to the next one here. Because God had helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. So you've got these units of a thousand people bringing up the Ark of the Covenant, and they're rejoicing, and there's this huge celebration. And then God says, um, and because he was helping the Levites carry the Ark, and you're wondering, well, why is that a big deal, God's helping them? Here's the thing. David already tried this once. He had already tried bringing the ark up once, and it failed miserably. In fact, somebody died. And David got so scared that he, he put the ark in someone's home for three months. How would you like to be that guy that got the ark in his living room for three months? Where would you put it? Well, he, Obed-Edom was the guy who got it. So, so they tried it once, and it failed miserably, and so now, now they're trying it again, and it's actually working, and no one's dying, and so they're very grateful, and so they're, they're sacrificing and making 
um, these sacrifices of bulls and rams at the same time. And I want to let you know, this is a slow processional. They would walk like every six steps and then a sacrifice. Again, very strange. But this is, <laughs> this is how their parade was uh, fleshing out. So verse 27. So you're wondering, well, what's David doing? David was clothed in a robe of fine linen. Makes sense. He's the king. He should. As were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, and as were the musicians, and Kenaniah, here we get to hear about him again, who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. David also wore a linen ephod, or ephod. Now, something you need to know about this linen ephod, it was, it was part of the priestly garment, and it was kind of an undergarment like an apron. And there's a significance for that, is that David, David was saying, in essence, um, I'm, we I'm wearing this, this apron. It's a symbol of being ceremonial, ceremonially clean. It's, it's a symbol of serving God, and it enables the priest to hear from God. That's what it symbolized. And he's also wearing this kingly robe. So David is, is kind of saying with what he is wearing, he is saying, I want to I rule the people, but I want to rule the people in a way that helps them connect, get this, to the presence of God, that helps them connect to the voice of God. And so that's why he's wearing what he's wearing. Let's continue to read. So all of Israel, all of Israel, brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouts, with the sounding of ram's horn, horns and trumpets and of cymbals, and of the playing of lyres and harps. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, or Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. Note, she is his wife. So the wife is watching from a window. <laughs> and when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. Now pause. Something's not right here, is it? I mean, you've got a king being honored for, for now assuming the throne, and his wife isn't near the processional. She's at the house looking through a window and very angry. So you may be wondering what's happened. Well, like we know with all marital conflict, there's always more to the story, right? There's always more going on beneath the surface. And so she's skipping out for some reason. Now, if you cross-reference this story with 2 Samuel, you will find out more information. But for the sake of this message, I'm not going to get into all of it. But I will tell you this. They had a pretty heated argument. And it boiled down to this was her beef that, that was uh, communicated. Basically, she didn't like David's course of action. She didn't like his dress, his dancing, his celebrating, and the way he was choosing to go about his reign. Husbands, have you ever had a wife look at you and say, what were you thinking? No? Or how about her saying, what are you wearing? What is that? I guess some things don't change, do they? So she didn't like it. But I also want to draw attention to this. When you choose to follow God, when you choose to do what's in your heart, what you believe is right, in a way of expressing your devotion and your love to him, people won't always agree with you. And they will also misunderstand you 
and not quite get why you're choosing to do what you're doing. And I think we see that a little bit with here as well. Well, let's continue to read about this processional because it continues. They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. Now notice David and the priests were making offerings, and I, and I want to draw attention to what these mean. So a burnt offering was when a pure animal was sacrificed completely and wholly. And it, it symbolized it an atonement for sin, like a cleansing for sin, and it also symbolized it a total commitment and surrender to God. Beautiful, isn't it? That symbol. And so David and the priest did that, and they also offered fellowship offerings. And what fellowship offerings stood for was a voluntary act of worship and thanksgiving. And it was also followed, you know, included a meal and food. So this is something that, that David and his priests did for the people. And we continue reading in verse 2 that after David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, it said that he blessed them. In the name of the Lord. And that he gave him a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each Israelite man and woman. Isn't that beautiful? So they, they get to the end of the parade, and then David, the, he offers these offerings, and then he says, I bless you, I bless you, I bless you, I bless you, in the name of the Lord. And not only that, he fed them. And apparently, a cake of dates and a cake of raisins was really good. Apparently, that was something that delighted them very much. So just when you think that the festivities are over, David continues, and he actually, he kind of makes some assignments, and he makes some hires. Check out what he does in verse 4. David appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to extol, which means to praise enthusiastically, thank and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. They were to play the lyres and the harps, to sound the cymbals, and were to blow the trumpets regularly before the covenant of God. And it says that that day, David first appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord. Now, some of you might recognize this name, Asaph, because Asaph has 12 psalms attributed to him. So if you're reading Psalms, you might see right underneath the chapter title, it might say, A Song of Asaph. That's this guy. So David appointed Asaph as like his lead music worship leader of all of Israel, of the Levites. Some of you might recognize some of these songs of Asaph, and, and I wrote some down to say to you. So for the next verses of verse 7 through 36, we're not going to read them all together, but here are some of the Psalms of Asaph here. Seek out the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love, de loving devotion endures forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. We continue. So David left Asaph and his associates before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to do what? To minister there regularly according to each day's requirements. What does he do? He makes these hires. 
these people. He gives them assignments and he says, you have a job to do. And what your job is, is to worship the Lord, to pray, to make music, to give praise to God. And I want you to do that 24-7 in the presence of this tent around the ark. And he left Obed at Edom and his 68 associates alone to minister with them. Verse 43, then all the people, when it was done, they departed to their homes, and David returned home to bless his household. Now, not quite sure how that blessing went when he got home to his wife. But again, if you want to know the full story, you can read 2 Samuel 7. Needless to say, it was a full day. And now you're, you may be listening to this and you say, Lisa, great story, fun parade, I like the dancing, you know, the marital conflict, that's kind of fun, but what's your point? This is what I'm wondering. This is how David decides to begin his reign as king? This great king, King David, a parade of musicians, priests carrying this precious box, dancing like a foolish man in an apron, um, using his royal budget on treats and cakes and salaries of dozens and dozens of worship leaders and musicians. Now, I think Cliff would like that. I think he gave me a nod last service. It's all for that. Today, a new prominent leader wouldn't do that, would they? They would assemble a team mostly of strategists and administrators and IT experts and project managers and social media experts and, you know, fashion coordinators and a PR team because that would be their, you know, avenue to success. They wouldn't appoint singers or guitar players or spoken word artists, and they definitely would not invest in a prayer tent. And yet David appoints worshipers. In the center of town, David assembles a team of people who pray, who worship, who praise, who call upon the name of the Lord. That is his first act of business. Can you believe that? So in short, I think his priority was this. Establish a space for the presence of God at the center of their city. That's what his priority was, to establish a space for the presence of God at the center of their city. Why? Because he knew that out of the presence of God flowed everything that was good for his kingdom. He didn't want to move forward as king without the presence of God at the center of everything that he did and how he ruled and he reigned. So get this now. King David is saying, I want this city, Jerusalem, not only to be the political capital, but I want it to be the center of worship for all of Israel. And he wanted this kingdom to, to have that going on 24-7. And we learn later as you read that this greatly blessed the heart of God. So David's bold leadership was an overflow of a life spent in the presence of God. This life spent began as a little shepherd boy tending sheep. And now he was raised up to be the leader of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Many of you know how the story goes. He became perhaps one of the most significant kings in all of time for Israel, and his reign was one of complete peace and prosperity for the people. 
Yes, he made some really big, big mistakes and setbacks, but you know what? His heart, his heart always returned to the Lord. And he returned in humility, adoration, and trust. So, what does this mean for us? I think we learned from him that a life of growing trust in God is a life grounded in his presence. I think that's something David teaches us. That a life of growing trust in God is a life that is grounded in his presence. It was formed very early in his life. His ability to trust in the Lord and that continued on through his reign. And listen, chaos hit his life so many times. But he spent his lifetime seeking the presence of God and that's what carried him through. That was his training. You know, we begin this series, uh, Matt mentioned Psalm 27. And today we're going to do a full circle with Psalm 27 because I think after this story that we've read together, it provides a little more insight into what's happening here. Psalm 27, 4 through 5, this is the words of David. He says, One thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. To dwell in the house of the Lord. We see that in the story, don't we? To gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. It goes on and he says, For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. And then I love this. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Where was David's trust built? The sacred tent. In other words, the presence of God. And we see very clearly that this is where his trust was deepened. Church, I think if we really want a life that trusts in the Lord, if we really want this life that, that lives out of a not my will but yours, God, be done, that lives out of this not leaning on my own understanding but submitting to you in all my ways, that kind of trust, that flows out of a space that is deeply connected to God. A space that is deeply abiding in the presence of Jesus. And it flows out of his presence. And, and out of that comes love and joy and peace and wisdom, understanding, holiness. We will grow in our ability to trust in God to the degree that we are grounded in his presence. To be grounded, to be anchored, I like to think of it as to be at home, to be at home. Now, a, a word about presence. Some of you might be sitting there and saying, Lisa, I mean, Jesus said he's always with us, so aren't we always in his presence? Yes, that is true, and that's a good question. But, but let me ask you this. If you're in a room with somebody else, is there a difference between being in the room with somebody and, like, paying attention to what they're saying looking at them, engaging with them, connecting with them, being aware that they're there versus totally ignoring their existence. There's a difference, isn't it? I know some of you have probably been maybe uh, sitting next to somebody or having this conversation. At one point, you're like, are you listening to me? 
You're like, you're there, but you're not there. I think we can relate to that. My mom used to joke with me. She's like, Lisa, you weren't paying attention. I asked you to take the trash out. Or I asked you to, you know, put this over here in the room, and you put it over there. And I said, sorry, Mom, you know, it's like selective hearing. <laughs> I think sometimes we have that same deal with God. So there's a difference between being, in the, being present with someone and engaging and being aware and just not even paying attention at all. And I think there's something there when it comes to, to being with God. It's to be attuned to him, listening to him, being watchful, and that takes practice. That takes intentionality. I had the privilege of going on a, a three-day prayer retreat back in December, and I chose to go to this because of the man who was leading it. His name is Terry Wardle, and he's been leading these ministries called uh, Healing Care Ministries for 40 years. And I've uh, had the privilege to, to sit under his teaching a few other times before, and so when I found out about this, I'm like, I'm there. Why did I want to go there? Because I saw that this man had lived a lifetime, had lived a lifetime of seeking after the presence of God. And, and his life, when you were around him, his presence reflected that. I mean, have you ever been around somebody and you're like, man, they, they just, they spend a lot of time with God. <laughs> There's just something about their presence that exudes, that exudes this deep love and this peace it's almost like they have this extra antenna or something to heaven, you know, like they, their, their ability to hear from God, their ability to see you that sometimes makes you feel self-conscious but also known and seen at the same time. It was kind of like this guy. And you know what? He was an ordinary man who lived an extraordinary life of being in the presence of God. And you know what? It's funny because this, uh, this seminar was so simple. It was probably the most, like, stripped down, um, basic, non-flashy seminar I'd ever been to. And, and I'd sit in that church basement and I'd sit in that folding chair all over again for three days. Why? Because I encountered the tangible presence of God for those three days. And it was this man and his team that God used to be able to do that. And I won't forget, he had this quote that I held on to. He said, learn to cherish anything in your life that helps you lean into the presence of Jesus, even if it's painful. And what he, what he said carried a lot of weight because he had just shared with us a, a, a deep struggle in his life with his health. And I'm like, you're learning to cherish God through that? But I think he's right. To learn to cherish, to lean into the presence of Jesus, anything that helps us do that even if it's painful. Dallas Willard has a, a quote that I appreciate. He says this, arrange your life so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. It's a choice. It's a choice how we decide to arrange our life. And we definitely see from our story of David that he arranged not only his life, but his whole kingdom around what gave him deep contentment, joy, and confidence in his everyday life with God. He wanted God to be at the center of his kingdom, literally. So that begs the question, what have we set up at the center of our own kingdoms, at the center of our own 
lives. Because here's the deal. Whatever is at the center is what you trust, ultimately. And likewise, whatever you ultimately trust in your life is at the center. Your life will be arranged around that which you trust the most. Some people trust in their bank account, financial security, their job, their health, their spouse, their family, their kids, social media popularity. I mean, you name it, right? The list could go on and on. The dream you're pursuing, whatever you're trusting in is, is kind of what, what you rise and fall on throughout the day. It's what gives you life. It's what gives you joy. It's, it's what you think about when you're and quiet and at peace. It's what rises to the surface. It's what has your attention most of the time. And for David, it was the beautiful, holy, joy-filled presence of God. That's what he arranged his life around. So in our context, what does that look like? How do we do that? You know, I don't expect you to throw a parade and pitch a tent in your backyard. But I, I think there are simple things we can do. There are steps we can take, and it's just a matter of starting where you are. We're all in different places in our spiritual journeys, and that's okay. And so what does that look to take a step forward and say, okay, God, what does it look like to, to seek uh, being with you and to be mindful of you today? Um, it, it, it could be, you know, carving out some time uh, in the morning if you have it. And I know some of you, you know, you're in a seasonal life where you have little kids. That could be impossible. Um, and so you're enjoying God might be throughout the day during the, the different tasks and things that you do to serve your family. But if you have a chance to carve out some time, I started out my year lighting a candle in the morning, and it's just kind of this symbol of sitting in the presence of God. There's something about the flame, you know, the flicker, the, the, the heat, the warmth of that that reminds me that God's with me. And I just say, God, I, I, fill me with your presence today. What do you, what, what's on your heart for the day? Um, give me the strength and joy to, to do whatever it is we need to do. And I thank him for his love, and it's just a, it's a sweet time that I do. You can enjoy nature. God is all over in nature. I know some of you do that and enjoy that. Music, intentional with car time. Maybe, it, maybe it's finding an app. Guys, there are a zillion apps out there that are created to help you connect with God. There are so many. So maybe you could tap into that. Parents with kids that love screen time, maybe when they get screen time, that's your space that you can take to be with Jesus. Some of you already have these rhythms in place, and that's wonderful. So what could that look like for you to continue that going? Do you practice a Sabbath, a time of rest, taking a retreat? I try to have rhythms throughout my year where I get away on a personal retreat with the Lord. Friends are wonderful to help us with this. Surrounding yourself with people that, that make pursuing Jesus their priority. So it's about starting where you are. It's about delighting in God and experiencing him and having, you can have some fun with it. And by the way, the best way, the best way that you can influence the people you care about, the people in your life, with your friends, your coworkers, your kids, about knowing and following Jesus is for you to do it yourself. Is that, can they, can they look at your life and say, you arrange your life in a way 
where, the tru- where trust in Jesus is center, where seeking Jesus is center, where you delight in being with God. And you know, I think sometimes in our, in our desire to, to, to love the world around us and to do good deeds because we have been called to do that, sometimes we get the kind of priority uh, backwards. And I want to read this quote by Robert Mulholland because it kind of made me pause when I read it. He said, Often we will expend an amazing amount of energy and resources to be in the world for God. But you see, we are called to be in God for the world. And I know our church is filled. We are filled with people that love to serve our city, that love to be engaged in what's going on for the benefit and the flourishing of our city, your community, your family, and I think that's great. But there's a warning here, and I think Robert Mulholland, he nailed it, and he said, let's not get it backwards. Let's remember that we are first to be called we are first called to be in God for the world, not the other way around. So if we truly want to be a blessing to the world around us and to the people in our lives, it comes from a place of pursuing the presence of Jesus. I want to close our time with uh, reading these words of Jesus over you. If you'd like, you can close your eyes and just kind of pay attention and and uh, lean into these words. I won't have them on the screen. So listen to the words of Jesus as he says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Amen. Do you want to live a fruitful life? Do you want a life that trusts in the Lord, no matter what is happening around you? Pursue his presence. Enjoy him and make him the center of all that you do and all that you are. For our final prayer today and blessing in the words of David, may this be our corporate prayer. One thing we ask from the Lord, and this only do we seek, that we may dwell in your presence all the days of our life, to gaze upon your beauty, and to seek you with our whole heart. Amen. Go in the peace and the joy of Jesus today.